Let us pray. Oh Lord, if there is anything said from this pulpit that is against your will, let it come to naught and do no harm. But if there's anything said from this pulpit that is according to your will, let it be heard, as if sung by the voice of angels, that hearing we might believe, and believing obey. Amen. There was a woman who moved to Bloomfield Hills in 1959. She was coming from Long Beach, California. The Midwest wasn't new to her. She'd grown up in Chicago, but her parents moved to Southern California during the Depression, and that's where she met her husband, a Navy man that was stationed at Seal Beach during World War II. After the war, her husband took a job with Lincoln Electric, a position that came with a life of moving around from city to city. It was a good job, and so, so she put that impending move to the back of her mind. Maybe they could avoid it. Maybe they wouldn't have to move after all. Maybe they could somehow stay right there in Southern California, a place that had become her home. But they didn't avoid it. The woman's husband was moved to Bloomfield Hills for his job, and it was snowing on the day that they arrived. They rented a house on Gilbert Lake for a year, and then after a year, they built a house on Timber Lake Road, which is near Gilbert Lake, and her son loved it here. He went to Vaughn Elementary, and he played with all the neighborhood children, and he learned how to ice skate, and he played hockey on the lake. I wonder if she'd look out the window and see her son playing and be jealous because of the way he loved it here. Because she couldn't find her way here. She just couldn't find her heart here. Her son remembers that she cried a lot. It's funny, the things that we think we can avoid. We think maybe we can avoid, and then somehow they show up. It's like watching an old movie with a sad ending and thinking, maybe this time it won't be that way. Am I the only one that does that? This time, Old Yeller is going to make it. <laughs> this time, Jack Dawson is not going to sink to the bottom of the ocean with the rest of the Titanic. This time, Andy is not going to give away Woody and Buzz. Oh, I know. Oh. Can we just avoid it? Can we just avoid that hurt that's gonna come? Can I just be, please, can I just be the first person on the planet to never face financial calamity? I need that. Can, can my children just grow up with perfect health and 
uh, wonderful careers, without any marital distress, I want to be that person. Can I time my life up just perfectly so that my death comes precisely when my body and my mind are ready for it? And within minutes of the death of my dearly beloved, can it just go that way for me? I think this is one reason that we have the book of Job, because the movie doesn't change just because we're in it. We don't get to avoid what we wish we could avoid. I mean, because if anyone should have been able to avoid it, it should have been Job. Job, who was blameless. Job, who feared God and shunned evil. Job, whose family would get together every Sunday afternoon. He was one of those kind of dads. They'd have the fried chicken dinner and potato salad, the gingham tablecloth, well-behaved children. Job sitting at the front of the table, up at the head. and He was the kind of guy, Job was the kind of guy who listened really well to his children, opened the door for his wife, gave sound advice, tended to a garden, was honest in business. This was Job. So why is it that this story so quickly turns? What do we need to learn? Is it that the spiritual realm does not operate under the same conditions as the earthly one, is, is it that we need to learn that our limited minds can't conceive that there is so little manner of control that we have over the cosmic forces at play in the world? I woke up the other day and I couldn't stop thinking about that. I know, I'm really weird. But I couldn't stop thinking about the cosmic evil and the pressure that it puts on our world. And I couldn't stop feeling overwhelmed and disheartened about the role that I could have in that as a leader of a small church, and that's what we are in the grand scheme of things, trying to rally a community of people to be a counterforce to that thing that we have long called Satan. And Job, the blameless one from Uz, should be disheartened the most because today we're offered in the back half of this passage an explanation about what is about to happen to him. And we're told that there's this deal made between God and Satan, that God is in on it. Disheartening, this feeling of betrayal. And his life is shattered then. In the next few chapters, we see how a natural disaster sets fire to his cattle, and an enemy force comes and slays all those servants, and a great wind sweeps through and destroys the house where all of his children are eating, and they die together. It feels contrived, the way the story turns and the explanation that we're given for it. 
As if God's deal with the devil is the best that we could come up with to explain what's happened to this man, Job. And I wonder if the answer is just so much simpler, and it's that Job just wasn't in as much control as he thought he was. And I wonder if the same is true for us, that we're just not in as much control as we think we are. And I wonder how much of you are ready for me to stop talking because you really don't want to hear that. (laughs) And then I wonder if there's some people that are just like, thank God you said it. Because I need to breathe better. Because I've known for a long time I don't have the kind of control I've been pretending to have. And I can breathe a little bit better now. Job had his little world all tied up in a bow. And then it was untied. I imagine that's how the woman felt, the one that that moved here to Bloomfield Hills in 1959, that her life had been untied. She came to church. That's what we do when life comes untied. She came to church to try to figure it out. She came to this church. She came to church on Christmas Eve. She came early because the sanctuary was packed and she sat there. Her son remembers sitting right where you're sitting here in this sanctuary. Squirming in the pews. He told me, I had no idea what the minister was talking about in the sermon. But I spent my time looking up at the vaulted ceiling, wondering how this place was built. It was a place of wonder for me, of something beyond the normal. Now that family moved again in 1963, this time to St. Louis. And I can't tell you how the woman responded to that move, but I can tell you that her son graduated from high school in 1968 and then went off to college at Amherst, which is in Massachusetts. He had his eyes set on being a physician, but He wasn't in as much control as he thought he was. His test scores weren't up to snuff, and so he had to recharter his course. And so instead, he went to Harvard Divinity School. I'd like to think that his course was rechartered not just because of his test scores, but because the Holy Spirit was involved in some way, and maybe even was involved in putting him in one of these pews that that experience, that communal and mystical experience at Kirk in the Hills had some impact on his decision. Might it be that God had a bigger world in mind when he plucked that woman's family up from Southern California and set them in Bloomfield Hills? Might it be that God had a bigger world in mind than the little one 
that she wished she could control. Might it be the same for us? Might it be that we get so consumed by the little world that we think we can control that we forget that God is tending a much bigger world? Later in Job, in one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, after Job has been broken to the point of exhaustion, God speaks to Job, and this is what he says. Who is it that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man. I will question you, and you will declare to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the heavenly beings sang with joy? And he goes on like this. God goes on like this for two chapters with Job. It may be that part of the lesson of Job is that, that we aren't in as much control as we think we are. A timely lesson for some of us. But it also might be that the lesson we learn from Job is that God is in more control than we give him credit to be. That God does not create the difficulties we face, but he won't waste them either. That's how it was for Scott. That was the name of the boy, Scott. The one that sat in the pew and squirmed and looked up at the stained glass windows. The one that went off to Harvard Divinity School. That was his name, Scott. As part of his studies at Harvard Div, Scott was sent to rural Maine to be a student minister for a summer. And while he was there, he was invited by his field ed supervisor to come back after he graduated. The supervisor said, all that you want is right here. And it was. He came back, a far cry from his mother's beloved Southern California. He went and spent the entirety of his professional life serving churches in rural Maine. He served this small church in a town called Fairbanks for 30 years. Not an easy place to live. Drafty windows, old wood stoves. Really good people, though. Really good, hard-working people. And Scott served them well. Part of his duty included directing a week of summer camp every year for third and fourth graders. 
And so it was on a summer Sunday in 1986 that he was standing outside this mess hall. This tall man with clean hands watching parents walking in and out with their children and their duffel bags. He introduced himself to all the children as they came in. And then this one with shaggy black hair and crooked teeth <laughs> walked up. Who are you? I'm Scott Planting. And the one with shaggy black hair and crooked teeth, the smallest one of the bunch, looked back up at him and said, I'm Nate. Nate Phillips. And he said, oh, Phillips, okay. As if he knew something about my family history that I didn't. <laughs> and so began my relationship one of the, with one of the greatest heroes of my life. A man who got to know my family as a kid and gave me a job in youth ministry took me to South Africa as part of a, a mission trip with our presbytery. He baptized our oldest child. And then one day, he said, why don't you take a trip and visit Princeton Theological Seminary? The finest theological seminary. <laughs> he didn't say that part. But he did say, I'll pay for the trip. Now, 15 years after that conversation, he was back in this sanctuary. This time, not squirming in the pews, but standing at the lectern on the occasion of my installation as pastor here. He gave the charge to the congregation and told all of you to be good to me. <laughs> what a world. What a big world. It's a world that we, like Job, like Scott's mom, we have no hope of controlling. But it's a world that God is tending to. In this moment, God is tending to this community, but not just for this moment. See, that's the thing. God is tending to decades from now. And in Jesus, in Jesus who in the Garden of Gethsemane wondered about God's plan in the same way that we wonder about God's plan, in and through Jesus, God tends not just to this moment and not just to decades from now. God tends to our eternity. And so, your invitation invitation of your lives, really, is to live into that. Live into the reality that God is tending to the future with all the love that he has, even if it doesn't feel that way right now. Live into it with all the person that you are, with every day that you have. Because the days that you have are far less yours to control 
than you think. Amen.